The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. So welcome, everybody, to the uh, Lift the Mask podcast. I am really excited to have some time to spend with John here, who is actually uh, maybe one of the first leaders that we have been able to talk with as it relates to experience during the pandemic. We've talked to a lot of frontline folks who have had uh, actually stuff to say about, you know, what they experienced as good leadership, um, what they expect as, uh, I mean, experienced as leadership that could use improvement. But it's great, John, to have time to spend with you. So thanks for being here. And if you want to maybe just begin telling us what is your role and what kind of organization are you a leader in? So my name is John Lubinick, and I'm the vice president of Acute and Forensic Services for Continuum of Care. We're a non-for-profit organization that's been around for over 55 years, working with mental health and co-occurring substance abuse populations to provide residential care as well as crisis care. Uh, We also have an outpatient clinic and we service DDS populations as well. So that, that's really helpful to know. So this is, you know, we've been talking a number of, let's say, nurses in the ICUs, medical ICUs. So this is, although we have talked with folks in mental health, so this is a, a program that serves people with mental health problems and substance use problems. And you said residential services. And so is it, it's really a community-oriented program. And can you say a little bit about your leadership? How long have you been there? How many people are you involved with leading, et cetera? Well, as an organization, we have over 800 employees. I oversee our crisis services. We have crisis residential homes where people can stay short term, where we provide 24-hour staff. And I have a team of five different directors that um, oversee different programs. So that's really helpful to know. So crisis services. So as we begin, you know, asking you about what it was like, you know, when the pandemic hit, 
the, the people, the human beings that you're responsible for taking care of in terms of the clients are people in crisis. And I can imagine you don't want those services to shut down during a pandemic. So what was your on the ground experience, you know, back, let's say February of last year, I mean, starting to hear about the pandemic and when did it start to enter your, your mind as this is maybe going to happen and then what happened? The best way to describe it, I, I, you know, I know we met pretty early on and we were meeting as an executive team daily to try to kind of figure things out with, you know, our biggest concern being continuing to operate as an organization. We, we operate programs that don't close down. We're responsible for caring for people 24-7. So obviously, when, you know, our two biggest concerns were our staff and also the, the clients we service. You know, that's, as I recall, it was just meeting as an executive team daily to really try to keep up with what was going on and how we were adjusting our protocols and sending out that information to the staff um, so that they have a guideline. And, you know, that was continuing to update, you know, as the CDC guidelines are changing, we were, we were meeting daily to try to keep in line with that. So it was So again, really helpful. Again, we've heard a lot of folks uh, on the providing care front lines. You're on leadership front lines. You know, the clients you serve are clients that need care. And, you know, as a leader, immediately crisis hits, immediately the priorities, take care of the staff, take care of the patients or or the clients. And actually before that, do you even remember what it was that when you all as a leadership team decided to meet? you know, regularly about this? Did somebody come down with COVID? Was there, like one day you're meeting and doing your regular stuff, then the next week you're meeting with crisis meetings about COVID. Like, do you remember what happened? Well, yeah, it was, you know, we meet as an executive team weekly. So it was at a a weekly meeting that we really decided that we need to meet daily because of cases that were coming up and we were pretty fortunate early on that our houses remained COVID-free for quite a while in the beginning, and it was really staff were getting sick and calling out. That became the crisis, you know, that how are we going to keep our houses run appropriately and continue to provide the services and the quality of services with staff getting sick? So I'm, I'm making a mental list as a leadership as a leader, as a leadership team, these are the things we're concerned about. Take care of staff, take care of the patients or clients. This is what we're going to start doing. You know, instead of meeting weekly, we're meeting daily. And then a list of like, what are the actual day-to-day kind of, I can't keep using the word crises, but like the the day-to-day struggles in keeping an organization going. So one of them was maintaining staffing, like people just started calling out or what, what happened? Yeah, I think, you know, as uh, across the country for quite some time now, at least the past couple of years, there's been this recruitment crisis with, you know, recruiting good staff. I know it's um, something we were talking about pre-COVID that we had so many vacancies and to get the right people in was one of our crises before COVID hit. So as staff were calling out, you know, already having vacancies and shortage of staffing that became a big crisis 
So that's actually helpful to know. And and I work in behavioral health, so I, I know that the, there has been a workforce shortage in behavioral health. Actually, in, in all of healthcare, it can be an issue in nursing, and, you know, from, depending on where you are, but it is chronically an issue. So you're coming into the pandemic already, it's hard, you know, to hire. And then you got to keep people in the organization and and working in order to serve the client. So were there things that you were able to do? How did you do that? Well, it was a lot of creative thinking, you know, in terms of offering folks different types of position, uh, different types of hours and doubles. And um, we implemented hazard pay. We were um, really trying to be flexible with our divisions in terms of sharing staffing as needed. I think, you know, overall, I am very blessed to have such a brilliant team amongst me that, you know, we were just able to really put our heads together. And some of the things we did just to, in terms of prevention, was to allow some of the salaried staff and some of the core leadership staff to work from home to avoid people getting infected. And also with childcare, you know, childcare for a lot of our staff became such a huge issue because of remote learning. And, you know, what a nightmare for all of the folks that have children. What a nightmare that is for for staff that are being asked to maybe work doubles and they got children trying to log on to their classes. So, you know, again, just trying to be as creative as we can and really, you know, I personally just really listening to my my team leaders on and what they think might work and trying out different things, piloting things as houses started to have breakouts, you know, piloting these things to seeing what works so that when it happens again at another house, we can try it. If it worked, if it didn't work, it was just endless creative ideas and thinking fast. <laughs> so that is really helpful. Part of what's really interesting talking with you, John, is thinking about how to do the leadership thing you know, and how to do it right. And we were not prepared for this crisis. Nobody was, but it sounds like you really hit the ground running as a leader, as a leadership team. And so, you know, one of the things that did was you relied on your team, you know, to come up with solutions. It sounds like you were really flexible. If people had a good idea over here, let's see what people think about it over there and let's get it over there as as quickly as possible. And then a lot of real creative things like you said, you had a workforce shortage to begin with, and then people are calling out, and then you're allowing for flexibility in work and work from home and all that. That's really helpful. So one of the things that, you know, it does sound like you guys did really well as a leadership team was you said you didn't, you never stopped being open. And probably that was a big worry, right? And I think, did you say that you actually never stopped taking a crisis admission? Yeah, I mean, our, our crisis programs work with emergency rooms and hospitals, and, you know, we have uh, a crisis program that takes commercial insurance and takes uh, works with um, emergency rooms for the indigent population. And, you know, people don't stop sick or having episodes or needing right. help. That doesn't stop because we have a pandemic. So, you know, it was really critical for us to really think about how we can continue to work with our, our community providers in terms of keeping our doors open because it's such a critical needed resource and it's, you know, we don't have enough beds that we need already. So we did uh, at one point go to single rooms because we have a lot of shared rooms and we stayed at single rooms for a while. But you know, I do, I got to say our crisis programs did phenomenal because we, we really were able to keep infection rates really, really low. 
that's really a testimony, you know, to the work of that leadership team to not have a break in providing care. And you're not one of the larger hospital systems, right? The smaller organizations, you're also bringing a voice from a smaller organization it doesn't have all the resources and, you know, that bigger organizations have to do it. So I'm glad that you give your, you and your team credit for that. I also remember when we were talking, you mentioned something about, did you feel as a leader it was important to jump in as well? Well, that's always been my, um, enjoy jumping in to help, but you know, in a crisis like this, you can't, you know, that's to me a no brainer to be available to help out as needed. What did that mean? What jumping in where? You know, covering shifts as a direct care staff, if need be. Um, I've been known to do that. And as well as the rest of our organization leadership team. I mean, you know, we have uh, VPs that will go to a house and help paint, you know, or, or clean up the yard or, I mean, that's just kind of, we've, we've always kind of felt like a family and that's just how we roll. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I just think that's amazing. And not everybody does it. And and one of the things as a leader jumping in and filling in a direct care role, I, I think one of the, the people we talked uh, with remembers specifically, I think this was a nurse that, uh, you know, when they were getting slammed in the pandemic, a doc and a leader were doing transport of patients, like pushing patients around uh, the hospital because they were they were understaffed. And that that very act had a big impact on that person. You know, and I think, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to get the quote right here, but I th- did you call yourself, you said, I'm a diehard optimist when you were talking about even in the, so even in the pandemic, were you saying that you think that in some ways the, it brought your team closer? Yeah, I really, my team picks on me a lot because I, I, I tend to try to see the positive in everything. And I, I really feel like, you know, the world is of Zoom as, you know, we were talking earlier as, as difficult as that can be and how much it's made some of us feel like our lives are busier. It really gave us an opportunity to meet more often, to get together, to use each other as resources. I, I kind of pulled from the model that the our executive team did, and I asked my leadership team to have these morning huddles to touch base. How are people doing? What's going on? You know, are there things we need to figure out? How can we be helpful to each other? And we we continued to do that. And I really felt like that really helped us to, you know, helped me to get to know my my leaders on a different level and better. And, and I really feel like it's made our, our team more cohesive. You know, and as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking it makes total sense as you're saying it, but then I do wonder, like I wonder how many teams actually did meet every day, even if it's for a little bit, you know, and if we did a survey, I bet you that would have made a difference if some teams didn't, you know what I mean? In, in the spirit of your organization, one of the things about being in a community organization like yours is that there is, I think, a spirit of, of people chipping in maybe even more than normal, right? And you were talking about somebody was making, in the senior team, making masks. Yes. Our um, CEO, Patty Walker, our CFO, were sewing masks and bringing them out to the programs. Uh, we also had a deli at the time, and we were using the deli to deliver food to the program so that they didn't have to go out to buy food. Wait, so your CEO was actually making masks? Yeah, she made a ton of them. That's she makes that's, it pure brownie too. It's like none you've ever had. <laughs> but I mean, did did people? I mean, I don't think I've heard that before. You know, did people actually? I mean, was that like normal business because they know her as somebody that would do that, or did people say like, "Wow"? You know, this is a big deal that she's making masks. You know, when you say it like that, it kind of 
helps me to appreciate it more. But that's, you know, again, going back to that family atmosphere that we have, it's just what we do. And, you know, she's always been a, a wonderful leader in that respect. You know, my, my wife made a comment one time at one of our events, you know, how impressed she was that our, our CEO stayed afterwards, Patty stayed afterwards to help clean up. And then that was a moment too, where I was able to appreciate that more because it's just how we operate in it. It helps to remind me that not every not every organization is like that. But that's why I've been there for 17 years. And that's why I'll retire there. It's home. And as somebody that definitely has been in mental health for you know 25 years and know about the kind of organization you're talking about, smaller, not-for-profit, mission-driven. And it's actually, I think you're you're doing a service in the podcast, just letting people know about that world into the workforce issue you know maybe some of the folks listening to this will think hmm i want to be in an organization like that (laughs) (laughs) so and you know taking a bit of a left turn into again some of the challenges right so how did you manage again as a small organization too how did you manage staying up with i think you talked about it briefly but a little bit more how did you deal with the cdc guidance changing and what was that like as a leader incredibly frustrating to have to kind of amend our protocols. But I I think we got into a routine of really, you know, trying to send out regular addendums to our protocols. I I think initially we created a PowerPoint that kind of was a guideline to help staff manage how to stay safe for the clients, wearing masks, what to do if somebody has a fever, you know, really just going bullet by bullet. And we started with the the PowerPoint and then we were sending out memo addendums and really, you know, kind of made it clear that we were, as the CDC updated, we would do our best to, to update as well. Because, I mean, obviously, we um, the CDC is making recommendations and we're doing our best and continue to do our best to follow them. But obviously, running a, um, residential programs and group homes, not everything's going to always meet in line with that. So really as a team cohesively, what we actually just did the other day was we were talking about moving to a phase two and brought in some of our directors into the executive meeting with our CEO to hear from them because there's so much talk about, you know, this next wave that's coming and another uptick and several different trains of thought about, you know, do we lift restrictions or is that going to cause? And so there was a lot of tension about that. And we thought we need to hear from the people in the programs on what they think this Mm. institution should look like so that they have, you know, we need their input because we're, we're not there all the time. So getting their feedback on what we feel is going to be a safe way to move into a phase two. Well, actually, I was going to ask you a question. You're kind of already answering it, but I, I wanted to, because we've heard from a lot of, again, let's just say nurses in emergency rooms and folks in ICUs. And, you know, from that person, from the, the person on the front lines, uh, care deliveries perspective, it was really frustrating to hear one thing from leadership on day one, you know, don't wear masks. And then two days later, everyone's got a mirror mask. So we know that point of view. What was that like for you as a leader from that point of view? What, how did, what was that like to know, oh my God, we're going to change the entire message today? Like, how, what was that like? That was difficult. I feel like we did stay on point with the masks, you know, in terms of knowing that we needed them. And I remember at the time, that's when Patty started making masks too, because we were having trouble getting them in the beginning. You know, I mean, we did our best to really 
you know, let our teams know, you know, that's, you know, the reason why I started meeting with my teams regularly was really to help funnel that information in a thoughtful way, you know, rather than sending out a memo, you know, talking about it. And, you know, we did allow flexibility in our programs too, because we deal with so many different populations that sometimes what we might be saying to do isn't going to work for your house. And why is it not going to work? And what, how can we best keep people safe and work around that and maybe make some additions to that for your program? So that was tough. Yeah, and that actually that makes sense. Some of the advantages of being a smaller organization, you can be more flexible. If you're in a big, you know, healthcare system's got 50,000 employees, it's hard to be it's harder to be flexible because all of a sudden you have chaos. Also, it might be easier when you said earlier you asked for feedback or you're asking for feedback. Like that might be easier in a smaller organization. And when you ask for feedback, probably people feel you know, they have buy-in they feel like they're part of the decision-making process as opposed to here's a proclamation from the big corporate office. Do you know what I mean? So that actually is really helpful. When there's a disconnect, you know, it's uh, corporate saying this and they really don't know what's going on on the ground level and people get really disgruntled fast because it's like nothing they're saying is going to work effectively. <laughs> right. Which, you know, in a small organization might be easier, but also your, your sounds like your style as a leader and your team is to be pretty tuned in and flexible. And another thing that was hard, of course, was people worried about getting the virus, people uh, were, their kids were home, and all the stuff with managing that. How, how did that go for you? Very challenging. It, it continues to be a challenge with a lot of our, you know, my leadership team that has, um, we all, they all have pretty much children. So, you know, it was even a concern of mine and just it, it's tough to, to navigate through those fears, you know, because it's a real fear and we're all invested in this. We're all committed to this as a small organization, like you said, but um, at the end of the day, our families matter too. And we want to keep them safe. You know, we were fortunate enough to have our own vaccine. Um, one of the local area uh, community hospitals had uh, come to our building to administer vaccines for, for our clients. And then as, uh, as we also were able to start getting our staff vaccinated. So feel fortunate in that respect too. And, and didn't you also have um, town hall meetings? And how did you get the town hall meetings out to everybody? There was a series of notifications, you know, always email seems to be one of them, but uh, staff meetings and, you know, again, uh, the trickling it down to the leadership teams that are running programs that, we were going to get a town hall just so that voices can be heard. And, and, you know, we always try our best to hear from the direct care staff because at the end of the day, they're the most important person. You know, we have a lot of leadership staff in the programs that are managing things, but it's really those boots on the ground that are spending the time with our residents. Those, you know, those are the most important people and we wanted to hear from them too. And what their concerns are. And so we did uh, virtual town halls. We did them on each shift so that, you know, can be, can have access. Wow. That's so, a big deal. Cause you said residential. So you got people working 24 seven. So you did town halls overnight yeah, for the overnight shift, Stephen. We did them early in the morning. It was six o'clock. They were coming off. And we did it for the, the overnight staff. So when we were just chatting, getting to know each other, you, you brought up this term, compassionate leadership, which I actually hadn't heard of before. And so tell us a little bit about that and how it 
how it informs, you know, your, who you are as a leader and kind of explain some of the, what you've told us so far. Yeah. You know, it's funny when, when it was brought to my attention too, I said, there is such a thing as that, you know, it's really a, a style of leadership that doesn't look to um, influence through authority, you know, rather than demanding, encouraging, you know, trying to inspire hope, working on off of people's skills and talents and trying to create a sense of teamwork and being part of that team, you know, so rather than being the one directing the team, being more a part of that team, you know, another positive thing out of this pandemic has been our ability to really focus on compassionate leadership. And we did a, a funny story a survey I did for my team on self-compassion. And there was um, one of my leaders, she's going to kill me for saying this, but, um, you know, when she heard that we were going to do this exercise on our leadership meeting, uh, she said, oh, um, a compassionate survey, I'm going to, I'm going to ace this in the hole, you know, the social worker I am. And it wasn't until that first question hit that she said, oh, crap. <laughs> it's about self-compassion. So uh. it really, really brought up such a great conversation about a lot of different things as, you know, helpers, why we come into the field and how hard it is to sometimes ask for help. And through that process of, of some of my leaders opening up, it gives permission for other people to kind of talk about how they're feeling. And that's compassionate leadership. I feel that's the crust of it. Let's talk about that for a little bit, because that's really important, I think, not only as a leader, right? But you're saying also for staff as well. So that compassionate means also compassionate toward yourself. Tell us more about that. Like, how long have you been thinking that way? How, how do you operate that way? I chuckled when I heard the term because I, I, I said, oh, I finally found out what kind of leadership I, I have um, because I always felt like I've, I've kind of been that way. But being more attuned to it and actually reading about it, it really is a way to really, especially in our field, I think, to really have people feel valued for what they're doing and be able to identify when they're not doing so great and it's I think something that we're really cognizant of I don't you know I think we can do a better job because you know I'm not a good role model sometimes although you know you and I had talked and I have you know I have a, a real strict regimen of self-care that I do and I always say this to people you know my job doesn't feel like a job I really enjoy what I do so sometimes I'm doing it all the time but we really try to make it a priority about self-care and, and allow people to take the day off when they need the day off or the ability to talk about something and, and saying, hey, I just need to turn my phone off. Can you cover for me? I want people to feel comfortable doing that because, you know, it's been instilled in me for my self-care that we're no good to somebody else if we're not well. We need to give ourselves permission to be to be kind to ourselves, to be gentle to ourselves and to allow ourselves to be the best version of ourselves so that we can be effective in what we do. Right. Like, you know, when they tell you in the plane, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself. And I think you said you're a runner and do you do painting also? Yeah, I love to paint. I used to be a musician. I like to say I'm a retired musician now that I'm as old as I am with children. Um, so when I stopped playing music, which was just really a huge passion of mine, I had to find another creative outlet. So I started throwing paint around and started enjoying that. <laughs> well, it's important. I mean, and both of those things are creative things. You know, I think a lot of people have thoughts of doing stuff, but then oh, I'm not going to, today I'm not going to do it. You know, I'll do it next week. But your 
experiences that uh, it's been helpful to actually do that. And, you know, back on the, the self-compassion assessment, I mean, y- that you were talking about, like, do you actually use that with your folks? We did use that, yeah. And how does it work? Like, how do you use it with them? Well, it was to, to, to do the survey and it broke it down into four categories of self-care and it rated you high or low in terms of self-care in that domain. I can't think of the domains off the top of my head, but that's what we ended up talking about, our scores, you know, where we scored low and where we scored high, what do we need to work on? goes back to that giving people permission to kind of be a little vulnerable and, and talk about that. I mean, we spend so much time together at work and we do such intimate work that you have to allow yourselves to be human with one another sometimes, you know, and I, I know it can be a fuzzy line, you know, you and I talked about that too. We, we can't be each other's therapists either, but we can certainly allow ourselves to be vulnerable and give ourselves permission to speak our minds sometimes and be able to work things out or ask for a day off. And that's the way I feel anyway. It's, it's hard work that we do. Well, actually, it's really interesting that you're describing that line from the leader's point of view, right? Because we've, we've been hearing about it from the frontline healthcare workers' point of view, right? We've heard a, a lot of different things, like um, how actually how helpful it is when a leader crosses the line, so to speak, a little bit and says, are you okay? You know, Or how difficult it is for them to reach across the line to a leader. Like, do you like literally explicitly talk about that line with your team or it's just kind of a, a model in your head or, you know, and, and you, can you think of an example of, of something where that really helped to sort of cross the line a little bit? You know, I, we, we have talked about the line because I, I think, you know, with, with this idea of compassionate leadership, people are going to model what you're doing. You know what I mean? So I think that line has been more so talked about as people are working with and supervising their staff, that when it comes up, you know, that's when the line comes up because it it can be very difficult to, you know, I think as my leadership team is a very, you know, diverse, professional, competent group of people that I'm just honored to have around the table and bringing that down to on the ground level we want to help people. And I, I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice because we do, we do take it a little too far. And I, you know, I don't know, I guess that's debatable now that I hear myself talking about it because, you know, it's hard to continue to try to help somebody through their struggles while they still have a job to do. You know what I mean? And it's a hard line. And I, the reason why I'm saying it that way is because I think that's where the struggle becomes. And, and I think we do a pretty good job talking about it and working it through. And even though we sometimes um, may say to ourselves, you know, we, we, we go a little too far with this, you know, in retrospect, you know, it doesn't feel like maybe it is that far. In the moment, it may feel like it, but when you look back on it, you know, these are people's lives that, you know, they have, they're human. No, I, I, you know, I actually think it's a really profound point, John. I mean, you know, whatever we, we're these just words we make up, right? Call it a line, whatever. It, basically, it's thinking about how we connect with each other and how we connect with each other across roles, leader versus someone that, that you're leading. And I think what is coming across and talking with you is that whatever model, and I'm sure you wouldn't say, oh, you have to use the compassionate leadership model, right? But whatever, like, it's different if you have a model or if you don't. It's different if you think about it or if you don't. And whatever you, you know, model you use, it makes a difference if you're really seriously thinking about how do we connect with ourselves? 
How do we connect with each other? And I think that's been one of the things that, that probably has led to the, you know, I think you're right. In retrospect, I think, you know, you, you guys did do a good job. Uh, as we're kind of coming near the end of the podcast, I, I did want to ask you a little bit, because one of the things about the podcast is talking with people who have, who have reached out uh, for their own help with the hope that especially if people are listening to the podcast and are on the front lines and are kind of contemplating it, they won't, they won't say, Oh, no, I'm not going to do that, but they will actually reach out. And it's a little bit of a, a setup question for you because you're a mental health person, right? So of course, you know, you're going to be in favor of people doing that, but do you want to speak a little bit about your own experience and has that in, informed how you think about things? Yeah, I think it has. It's what's made me me. <laughs> I'm in uh, a person in long-term recovery. I'm no longer anonymous. I love that movement that came out. Um, I've been clean and sober for 21 years now. Congratulations. And my team and I joke about it all the time. We all come in this field for a reason. We all have a big heart for a reason. Sometimes because of our own experiences. So I am to a fault, very open, you know, with people about my recovery and not the grim details of my story, but that that I am a person in recovery and I struggle too. And more recently, because of my career over the years, I've been in recovery. You know, that's been my 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 journey is my career. But on the flip side, you know, my my son had gotten diagnosed uh, in kindergarten, was having some struggles. And that turned out to be, uh, you know, the hardest period of my sobriety. You know, I'm, I'm very fond of, of fellowship and, mm-hmm. and my disciplines and my self-care because it's what's taken me where I am and made me who I am. But that was a period of my life that just really turned everything upside down and dealing with the school and everything that, that happened and, you know, having a child that's struggling with uh, mental health you know, hit home and, you know, I had to practice what I preach and I had to get my own help too. And Uh the the first thing, you know, we did after getting him the right help was, you know, my wife and I getting help too and me getting help because it's a, it's, it's a life changing event and it's such a critical time for a child. It's like, you know, we got to do this right, as right as we can. And we're, we're not going to do that with based on our own thinking because we're so emotionally invested you know, where that leads me, John, is a couple of ways. One is, um, you know, making the point that somebody that's done treatment, you know, been in a program and gotten stable, you know, or is in recovery, and then something happens, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's what, you know, something's going on with your kid, like you said, that's big, right? Mm-hmm. And then taking the step to get reach out for help again is a big message, you know, and we've had a couple of folks that have talked about that because there sometimes people are like, well, I already did it. I'm not going to do it again, but to actually model that, you know, you never know what's going to come up and you know that this helps and why wouldn't you, you know, if you needed some insulin for your diabetes was flaring up, why wouldn't you do it? The other thing though, back to leadership, because now I remember you use this other term, wholehearted, you know, like your heart, wholehearted leadership, right? Didn't you use that term? And I, I was wondering if your own sort of journey of recovery has that allowed you to be you know open your heart more to being a leader as a leader absolutely to a fault sometimes <laughs> to a fault but do you, i mean would you say it, it is a, a strength as a leader i've embraced it as a strength yes i mean i i think i struggled with it early on in my career 
And I think, you know, this whole idea of wholehearted and compassionate leadership has helped to, to kind of allow me to say, you know what, this is okay. You know, this is who you are, you know, and it's, it works. I've been fortunate too, you know, with the people that have helped me around my career. I used to say, you know, and in, in, when I tell my story, I would say that I was fortunate to have, to be surrounded by all good people, you know, that were carrying me through things when I couldn't carry myself. And that included in my career. I, I yeah. have had and continue to have uh, leaders that have been there for me, yeah. know, helped me. And that, that helped to make me feel okay with it. You know, when, when I see it being done for me, you know, and say that this isn't, you know, having, being so compassionately invested in it isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as I'm practicing my disciplines and I'm taking care of myself because that's where I think I can get into trouble is if I'm not taking care of myself and I'm so invested into something, that's when, when things can go a little straight for me. One of the things that's really powerful listening to you is what you're saying, the description of leadership from your point of view is filling in the blank you know, for some of the folks on the podcast that have talked about their experience of good leadership. They didn't use the word wholehearted leadership, but I think they would have if they knew it, you know, or compassionate leadership, but I think they would have if they knew it. So it's actually really helpful for, thank you for those concepts and also how you get to the concepts, which it was a very personal opening of your own heart. So before we, we finish up, John, is there anything that you would like to add or we didn't get to? I do want to say thank you for, for having me. I think what you guys are doing is is just incredible. And I'm happy to be a part of it. I'm honored to be a part of it. This is good stuff. This is good medicine, as a friend of mine would like to say. Well, and I'm going to just, you know, flip that back at you. And, you know, on behalf of all of the people in crisis that you and your leadership team kept your place open for, I mean, some of them may have thanked you, thanked you, but they had a, had a lot going on too. So maybe they didn't have a chance. So I think we would like to thank you on their behalf because I think uh, you all deserve those thanks. And also for spending time with us and giving us a really kind of important view of what the pandemic was like, is still like from a leadership point of view. So thank you so much, John, for taking the time. Thank you for what you do. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic, with Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. 
This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Qual Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 Eight, eight, three.